You're listening to the She's Unshakable podcast. I'm your host, Fleur Lonsdale. And if you're looking to create incredible courage, resilience, and unshakable belief in yourself, then this podcast is for you. Each episode, I'll be interviewing incredible adventurers, athletes, and entrepreneurs to dig deep into the strategies and tools they use to create unwavering courage and belief so that you can learn how to never give up on your goals and achieve the life of your dreams. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Today I get the pleasure of speaking to Corby Mitleid, who is a guidance counsellor. She's a spiritual coach. She's pretty much everything that you kind of want all in one. And she's written a new book, which we'll be talking a little bit about today, where she really gets you to tap into yourself and what it is that you want to achieve out of your life and how you can teach yourself how to get what it is that you want to. So I'm very excited for that. Before we do get started, I want to let you know that I've got a beta program starting on the 1st of February. And for 10 very lucky ladies, I'm offering this at a very heavily discounted price so that you can give me some feedback, be part of the exciting start, and also help me build it together. So if that sounds like something that you'd be interested in and maybe you're feeling a little bit stuck, a little bit lost, and really would love to find your mojo back in life and become that bold version of yourself, please send me a message on Instagram or Facebook and tell me why you'd be a good candidate. And I will send you the questionnaire that I have for you to be able to fill out to see if you're gonna be a good fit. So without further ado, here's the episode with Corby. Enjoy it, have some fun. It really is a fun and incredible episode where we talk about things that we might not normally talk about. So have fun, please share it with your friends and enjoy. All right, Corby. Well, hey, welcome to the She's Unshakable podcast. I'm so excited to have you. I think you're the first sort of intuitive counsellor that I've ever had on the show and I love everything that you guys do as a as a whole um, and I'm so excited to chat to you and, and learn a little bit more about what you're up to and everything that you've been through in your life because it sounds like it's been quite the journey. It sounds like you've got lots to help teach our, our listeners and yeah, they can learn a bit more about you through your book too so we can talk about that later but why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction about how you got into um intuitive guidance counseling and we'll go from there all right what you're asking for is what i call the 30 second elevator speech (laughs) when i was nine i read a book called the witch family by eleanor estes and i went oh cool there's magic in the world i want to go find it fast forward to 1973 when i was a senior in high school and yes my darlings that tells you how old i am (laughs) that was the year live and let die came out with jane seymour as the fortune teller And they had the James Bond 007 tarot deck, and I bought it, because we were all hippies then. We had our (laughs) elephant bell bottoms and our fringe jacket and our vets. Now, five years later, everyone else had moved on to roller skates and disco balls, but I was still with the guys. I found them fascinating. So for 20 years, I read for friends, making sure that my ego was out of the way, and I was a clear channel for the information. All of a sudden, in 1994, I could do hands-on healing and talk to dead people with no training. That's when the universe said, hello, you're working for us, here's your draft notice, and I started doing it part-time. Meanwhile, very checkered career, actress, author, inspirational speaker, video producer, writer for a graphic novel series, legal assistant, executive recruiter for engineering and manufacturing, but always the psychic work all the time, on the side. Then came 9-11, and as we watched the towers burn, I turned to my husband, and I said, I will need to do this work full-time. People need to know there are other answers out there. And he said, I believe in you, go do it. So one more year working 70 hours a week corporate, evenings and weekends doing the psychic work. And in 2002, I took the leap. That's 20 years ago. I now work six days a week, 14 hours a day. I read about a thousand people a year and I get to get up every morning. I don't have to get up every morning. That's the whole key. Love it. Love it. Six days a week, 14 hours a day. You gotta love what you do, hey? <laughs> you gotta love it. And you do. Besides, I'm not on the road, which I was for 18 years. Sure. And I get up, I grab my coffee, when the cats start walking on me and saying, breakfast now. Um, smooch the husband, feed the, the crows outside that are our local crew, and come into work. What's so terrible? No, sounds, sounds dreamy. It sounds dreamy. Okay, so obviously you're on this podcast because you've been through 
a lot in your life and I love to talk about that I love to 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 speak the vulnerable truth rather than everything that's all amazing and wonderful now and I'd love to know tell us a little bit more about your your journey with breast cancer um how that really evolved you because I'm not sure when that was in your life and and obviously what that played but it's clearly made you the person that you are now so can you talk through that a little bit for us sure well part of it was um by the time I was 11, I had a Dolly Parton figure. And it was a very dysfunctional family with an alcoholic mother who hated herself and both hate, you know, loved, hated, and was jealous of me. So wildly toxic. Wow. Uh, something happened at age 16 with her that made it very clear that in her opinion, I was worth nothing more than, you know, drop and spread them no one would ever marry me because I was obviously a slut at 16 when I was still a virgin. Well, I could have gone two directions. I could have said, oh yeah, I'll show you and stayed a virgin until I was married. But instead I thought, she must know something about me. I don't. So for the next 25 years maybe, I went out to live the life that my mother told me was all I deserved while going to an Ivy League university and finding jobs, uh, two very short marriages. The cancer first happened when I was acting in New York in um, the late 80s. I was 34, no record of it in the family. And all of a sudden, it was two lumpectomies, radiation. You know, they were still there. That was while I was working 60 hours a week for a law firm to bring in money taking acting classes, doing off-Broadway, even with radiation and second-degree radiation. Um, about was skin cancer from the radiation in 2000, when I had moved to the Hudson Valley, up, uh, upstate New York. Again, excisions, they were scarred, they were misshapen, but they were still there. Got married to the right guy in 2002. In 2004... Microcalcifications again, both sides. They said three strikes, you're out. Wow. So we're taking the boobs, we're taking your ovaries, and you're going from this Dolly Parton figure to a fat fire plug with permanent side effects in three weeks. Suck it up. Nice. So at that point, I had done enough work on myself that I knew I had to get okay with it. I went home and cried for 24 hours. I am normal. <laughs> but I said, I have to find three reasons to be okay. I don't care how stupid they are. So the first one was, you don't have them. You can't get cancer there. Second one was, the top app is not going to get slammed in the refrigerator door at the doctors every year. And every woman listening knows exactly what I'm talking about with that one. And third, implants. I'll be perky till I'm 93. Okay. <laughs> that was in 2004. Uh, six hours of um, double mastectomy and reconstruction. Walked out of the hospital in three days, shot her bathing suit in five. Here I am at 66, almost 67. I'm clean. Life's good. So that was your, that was the third time, was it? Yep. Crikey. And it was the second primary. It wasn't metastatic. It was like the danger clock was back to zero. But university hospitals, most of them, you're not a person. You're a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. You're a meet with a number. And they don't really think about how you feel. They just said, you're done. You don't have a choice. We're doing it. And so you have to find a way to deal with that. Yeah, for sure. And, and obviously, <clears throat> that's never going to be easy for anyone going through that, but let alone having had to go through it twice previous, right? Like, I mean, we see it so much these days, unfortunately. It's, it's everywhere. Because of, because of the environment, um, they say that, 50% of us will have cancer in our lifetime now. There's mm -hmm. no escaping it. Um, were you in, were you in your, your realm of, like, were you channeling messages, etc. during that time? Well, that was when I was just start. I just started doing it right. um, you know, two years before full-time. Yeah. And I fully admit I'm a hypochondriac, you know. Um, so... I did not trust myself to channel it. Okay. 
but I did go to the woman that I consider the best medical intuitive in the U.S. Her name is Stacy Wells. She's a good friend. And she was the one that said what I had, where it was, and what they were going to have to do. And she was 100% correct. Wow. Now, from the spiritual side of this, um, the work that I have done with Robert Schwartz in his breakthrough series on pre-birth planning and karma explained to me a lot about the backstory. Karma is not carrot and stick. It's five things. Healing, service, contrast, unbalanced energy, and healing the beliefs. So one of the things that I had set to learn in this lifetime was women are more than their bodies. Mm. But I did it with a body that you can't cross-dress out of. And basically at this point, I think my higher self, my soul, basically said, look, we need you down there to do a lot of work, so we're going to remove the problem. Sure. And it's true. I look normal now to most people. If you didn't know what I looked like Before. with a rat, you wouldn't suspect. And it immediately catapulted me out of the body is all that anybody looks at mm. to find myself as a whole person. Mm. And that has enabled me also to teach with it. When you live the examined life, it's here's the horrible thing happening. Can't avoid it. What's the lesson? For me, the uh, second question, how do I teach with it? Mm. And then next, it's how you get through it. Yeah. And so many lessons in that too, you know, I mean, people deal with things completely differently, whichever path of life they've come from, whichever path of life they're going to. But you're right, and I think we'll move into this in your book a bit, but the fact that you, it's not about telling someone what to do, and it's not about this being the right answer and that being the right journey, because it's just not, everyone has to make their own journey themselves. I mean, I love that you talk about that. I think it's, there's almost too many people in this world that think that they know the best thing and that they should tell you what it is and that you have to do that and that's not how the body works and that's not how the mind no, works those, those are the people I say who think their aura don't stink <laughs> you know I've got all the answers you must listen to me if you're not an idiot excuse me yeah no no it's uh it's yeah it's it's everywhere too it's not it's not just a few people. It's quite a lot. It's quite a lot going on. But hey, you know, it's um, it's the way that they want to do things. And if that's the way they want to do things, then that's the way they've got to do things. Um, so tell me, obviously, there's been a few other challenges in your life. Um, obviously, the toxic childhood as well would have had a big part to do with essentially your awakening of being who you are now. But has, can we go back there a little bit and talk about how that was when you were 16 to... 35 I guess and how did you I guess how did how did you go from being that child and being under your mum's gaze of that's what you're meant to be to to really truly realizing that actually that's not what life is about and there is more to to what we are on as this human in this human existence in this body I didn't let myself get away with stuff mostly there are some people who are very bad at self-examination. And there are some that are magnificent. And I'm kind of in the middle. Um, because of my understanding that there's something bigger than we are, that these personalities we're in are a one and done, but the soul continues there was always a sense of there is a connection upstairs, if you will, that I could listen to. One of the things I teach about one of my other books is spirit guides and angels will never put you down, will never pump up your ego. They're not into whether you want the red car or the blue car. It's how you grow. And I learned to listen. Um, and my life has always been a roller coaster of change. Always. And when your life is that much change, you have to learn to run toward the change, not away from it, mm -hmm. and find out what you're here to do. Yeah. Um, basically, I found what I call my sense of passion. Your sense of passion is not who you are or what you do or even how you do it. It's your vapor trail. 
when you go skidding into heaven on bald tires and pubes in the tank, God hands you a cup of coffee and says, so tell me. You go, I did this. See, isn't it cool? So my sentence of passion is cross the bridge from fear to fearlessness and flowing. It is what I had to teach myself to do. But as a result, when I can take somebody from point A to point B when they felt they couldn't make it, tap them on the shoulder and say, here are your wings. You don't need a flight plan. Now get I am living my bliss, but I had to do it for myself first. I am by nature a teacher. I am by nature a preacher and a reverend. Uh, it's non-denominational, but I'm one of those people that a stranger will sit down and talk with me, and 15 minutes later they'll go, I never tell anybody this, and I'll just go, it's okay, keep going. Yeah. Um, we all have to teach something before we go even if it's just one person. And my nature as a teacher is I had to find all of my answers myself, but they're the most valuable. So that's what I want to tell other people. Don't look for gurus. One of my favorite sayings is mentor, yes, guru, no. There's a big difference. Mentors will push you out of the nest a little before you think you're ready and push you a little farther than you think you can go. But then they will sit in the audience and applaud you when you get an award for being better at what they do than they are. Perfect example, Meryl Streep, Clutching her Oscar, thanking her drama professors at Yale. Gurus, they're the ones who say, I have this magic stuff. You'll never get to where I am, but you can always sit at my feet and listen. <laughs> Esther Hicks with Abraham is a perfect example. They write the same thing in 14 books, and then you're supposed to go on a cruise and hear her say the same thing to you while you're on, on the ocean. Who died and made her God? <laughs> so when I. They're all. This is how it worked for me. Take what's useful for you and dump the rest. Yeah. Um, the book that started all of this um, was my book, Clean Out Your Life Closet, which is self-help. It's about clarity, adaptability, simplicity, and making friends with stress. But I make the reader participate in writing the book with me. Otherwise, why bother? It's just yeah. another bunch of words. Yeah, and taking action, I think, is so key, especially in the in the self-help kind of book realm it's so easy to to read and read and read and read and read and go oh, I've read all these books I must know all this stuff and then you've never actually done the work to figure out what it is that you need to take from that learning or to implement it is an oxymoron <laughs> yeah, so true. don't trust yourself listen to me here self-help what is it jungle shrimp King Frog, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so true. So can I just go back? When you, if you when you were 16, were you did you feel like you were spiritually aware then? Did you feel like you could no? Okay. No, 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 no. Um it was when I was 18. Okay, what In happened? 1973, hippies and spirituality and you know, Hate Ashbury had been in six and so uh, it was the first time that WikiWoo was legit. That's <laughs> how I'm going to put it. Um, but I always had a sense that I was different. Now, there's a very interesting little anecdotal thing that's running around. Those of us who are very active psychically, spiritually, and this is not spiritual like religion. This is spiritual as we know there's something else out there. Mm -hmm. Most of us got a clonk on the head when we were kids. We did. Uh, when I was four, sliding down a hill, um, great sliding hill in, uh, where I lived in New Jersey, no one had taught me how to roll off the sled when you don't want to hit something. <laughs> and it was oh, skull no. meets cement bench. Oh, no. <clears throat> I had very hard head. wasn't even fractured. But it was clunk on my third eye. Yeah. And a lot of intuitives have some, you know, they fell out of a tree and hit their head. They were in a car accident, they hit their head. Nobody was talented enough to clunk their head with a sled like me, I think I was once. Um, <laughs> but what it does is it, I think it snaps us awake. And when you are a child who is not popular, I was pudgy, 
I had glasses that were thick enough to be Coke bottles. And I was the easy target for everybody. You have to, you're not going to get lost in the material world because the material world doesn't want you. So you can find out what else there is. And I was lucky enough that I did have abilities that I could grasp and form instead of someone who just, you know, is like Miss Habersham in Great Expectations who just lives in this fantasy world and doesn't come out and actively work in the real world with what they've got. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I didn't realize that about people getting hit on the head. I've never, it's not something I've ever heard before. I would love to have somebody do a study, but (laughs) I would say at least 25 of the fellow in the news I know, we all go, yeah, clunk on a head. Interesting. Yeah, I should ask my, I guess I have a spiritual counselor here and I've, she's always, she's always just said, you know, from the age of four, she just knew she just, she could just see things and hear things and used to just get messages. You know, some people are like that, but not in my family. Um, you know, my father was what I call the Lauren Isley school in that he didn't necessarily believe in God, but he did think when he died, his addicts would be in the world and blah, blah, blah. Sure. Of course, he showed up in our house three weeks after he died. And... Hang on, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Was that, the, hysterically. was that the first time that that had happened to you? Uh, no, I had also worked with other spirits. Right. But my father and I were best friends. Mm. Had the same birthday. Uh, my understanding is he and I are always best friends in many, many lives. But this time, knowing what I had planned to learn, I needed a best friend for a father. And that soul agreed to play that part for me. So I used to say to him, as he got older, Dad, trust me, you've got to go upstairs, sign the guest register, unpack your bag, and get the orientation tour and we'll talk. <laughs> and he kind of it. Um, but that's what happened. And I cried for 30 seconds. And then I looked at him and I screamed, I told you! And there's this way, whack. And what so, happened? Pardon? What happened? What did he say? He just laughed. Um, he was a superb internist cardiologist. And sometimes when I do uh, medical intuitive readings, he'll come in. One of my favorite stories with that was I was reading a woman way in upstate New York. She was 74 and she was still an um, active registered nurse. She said, would you just do a check and see how I'm doing? And I sensed this rustle of the doctor's white coat behind me. And I pointed to the empty air and I said, I'd like to introduce you to my father, Dr. Jerome Dorkin. He was a really fabulous cardiologist when he was alive and he still does consults. Now remember, I know from nothing about this. <laughs> yeah. But I just open up and all of a sudden what comes out of my mouth is what's with the T waves. Yeah. Now, she looks at me. She had abnormal T waves on her last electrocardiogram. What did my father do as director of the heart station at the New Jersey hospital he worked at for 30 years but read EKGs? So I look over my shoulder at the empty air and I say, you know, you're still a pretty damn good doctor even if you aren't dead. He laughs. You know, is that the way it normally goes? I have no idea. But that's my father's you. Oh. Um, and it doesn't mean he's stuck on earth. Please, please, please. It's not that. But, you know, people have spirit guides. People see their departed loved ones. The way I try to explain how we work is I'm going to show everybody. This is your audiovisual aid. This is a hand. Now, this part is your soul. Everything that you ever were, ever will be. These are your incarnations. Notice the soul is too big to pick these little bitty bodies. So some comes down. This is the connection to God, all that is. My understanding is when we cross over, we hang up the personality like a coat in a closet. So whenever I talk to my father, he reaches in, he puts on the Jerry Dorkin coat for me so that I feel my father's loving energy. But he's in his full soul self. That's how it works. Um, or as God rest her, Betty White says, we'll all know the secret when we're dead. People say, how do you know this? And I have to say, I don't know it. It could be that when we all die, we'll find that we're really run by Ralph the Wonder Dome. But for now, this works. Mm. And, you know, I there are things I've done as a medium 
I can't explain. Like what? So can you give me can you give me an example? Oh, a couple. Um, I am not someone who just goes and fishes and sees who's up there. I get their dog tags. For instance, my father, Jerome Richard Dorkin, who died in 2001 at the age of 80, doesn't tell me anything but gets me right into the energy. Then, it's almost like charades. This is they smoked. This is they had surgery. This was a, a, it was a fast death. I have no idea why, but this is just how my guides work. Cool. A woman wanted to speak to her father-in-law. All of a sudden, I feel myself miming the pool cue. He taught her how to play pool. A woman in Canada wanted to speak with her grandfather. I feel myself salute. Now, we in America salute like this. Canadians and Brits salute, palm out. She had just graduated from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Academy two weeks before, and he was acknowledging. That's not, it's a rose they love you. <laughs> I don't know how those things come through, but they do. Yeah. And one of the reasons I will not do mediumship live is because I won't censor. Um, I will tell the PG story on, on this one. There was a biracial same-gender couple. The yeah. black partner had died. Her white widow wanted to speak to her. I got her person, but what would have come out of my mouth in flawless urban embonics was stuff I am not saying on a podcast. <laughs> Certainly shouldn't come out of this face. And I was going, but the woman in front of me was nodding and laughing because that is how her partner, Isabel, walked into the house and greeted her after every business trip. If my ego had said, oh, I can't say that, and botched the message, yeah. It would have made sense. So, that's one of the things. A true professional will tell you when they have no idea what they do, but they do it. Yeah. They'll tell you also when they can't do something for you. Um, So, again, rolling this back to the self-help book, I am not someone who can tell purposes. There's got to be some questions that may help. Um... We're here to learn, to pass on the knowledge, to get through it. And so, basically, I think there's a three-legged stool. you got to get clear on your purpose, clear in your relationships, and clear with spirit. But you have to do that. Nobody can hand you the recipe. Hmm. All they can say is you might want to sit over there. Yeah, for sure. So... How old were you when you when you had your third um, breast cancer operation, mastectomy, etc.? Forty-nine. And was that before or after the divorces, etc.? Um, that was after the two divorces, okay. and I had just married the right guy in two thousand two. Oh yeah, of course. You and did. I had no idea if he was going to stay with me or not. But my doctor said probably not. But he looked at me and said, am I going to miss him? Oh, yeah, they were gorgeous. But I married you, not them. This year's going to be our 20th anniversary. Nice. Damn right, too. So it should right be. this time. Good one. Um, so, obviously, when we spoke before, you said that that was another, you know, difficult thing to go through, two divorces. Um, and that obviously had a lot to do with you finding yourself, too, I presume. Yes. And what what was sort of going through your mind, the first one, and then how did you, I guess, fall back? I don't know. If, if you did fall back, maybe you didn't fall back into, into the belief systems and things that you taught yourself. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about the journey between the, the transition from, from those different moments in your life as to how, I guess, you, you found your right man. Well, the first one, it was less than a year. Uh, We were both in a Renaissance reenactment group here, and we forgot that um, the two mundane people came along with the Duke and the Countess, okay? Um, We were not well-matched. The second one was about 11, 12 years later. We had been friends for 12 years, both of us been there, done that. So we figured, eh, no one else is going to want to marry us. Let's do it. We're, we're great friends. Um, we were not each other's first marriage. At the end of two years, he said, I don't like being married. I'm leaving for California. Goodbye. Boom. 
which is why this one had to ask me three times before I said yes. And when I said yes, I said, there will be no divorce. We will get through everything. Because I was tired of living my mother's idea. I was great for taking a bed, but no one would understand it. Um, the key, I think, was in 1984, I found a place called the Option Institute in Massachusetts that taught me the three most important questions you can ever ask yourself. What am I ex about? Happy, sad, angry, depressed, whatever. Why am I ex about that? And the question we never ask. What do I think would happen if I stopped being ex about that stimulus belief response? And that allowed me to decide to be different, not to feel guilty about the decision, not to feel like I was cheating or lying. Um, the example I usually use, your belief, the stimulus is neutral, it's raining. You have three people. One man is at the beach for a week with his kids, rented a house, but it's going to rain all week. He thinks the rain is bad. We have farmers here in Spokane <laughs> County that have had two months of a drought. Mm. The rain happens. They're thrilled. I'm working in my office. Cats are snoozing on the tree. I could care. <laughs> now, the guy at the beach can decide, you know, I wanted to show my kids um, this Three Stooges marathon, and I've never had a chance. And so he sets it up, these Stooges, Mark, and all the movies from his childhood loved, and it turns out to be a really great week with his kids. He has decided, I will believe that this is good for me. One farmer in Schoharie County said, you know, if it had only stopped for another week, I could have got a big insurance payment. Damn it. So his belief is it's bad for him, and I still don't care. The key is, when we listen to ourselves, again, it's ourselves, and give ourselves a choice, things change. And I've taught this to parents. And it raises confident kids. The example. Kid comes home and says, I hate my teacher. An unthinking mother would say, you shouldn't hate your teacher, or that's not right, or whatever. The thinking mother says, why are you angry? Why do you hate your teacher? Because she gave me too much homework. Why do you think it's too much homework? Because then I can't go out and play. And instead of trying to reason with him, the mother just says, what do you think would happen if you stopped being upset about the homework? Um, I guess I could do it. And then what? And then I could go out and play? Uh-huh. So what do you want to do? I'll do my homework. Now, what this has done is this has honored the kid's feelings, allowed him to make a conscious choice, and validated who he is. Mm. Um, Which you know, most, and I feel, I don't know, sorry to interrupt, I feel yeah. as though a lot of parents almost think that they don't have the time to do that, that it's too time-consuming, that it takes up too much, and it's much easier to just say, be quiet and get on with it. Then you should not have had kids. Right. Kids are the most precious thing you've got. Mm -hmm. I deliberately chose at 13 never to have children, and I didn't, and I don't regret it, because I knew intrinsically I would have to re-raise myself. I'm a terrific aunt, but I didn't, I didn't have the mommy gene, let's put it that way. So, um... It's amazing how little changes can make big mm. differences when the child is older. And they don't have to go through what we went through. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think back to when I was younger and I went to see a counsellor. And the counsellor was all about just telling me what to do. And I was, like, and I was just... I was shocked because I was like, surely this isn't what 
you're meant to do. <laughs> Surely you're meant to get the answers from me. And at the time I was like, I can't believe people pay for this. And I think that's probably what took me into the coaching realm because coaching is about asking questions and finding out about that person and them coming to the conclusions. Because for me, I was just, I was, yeah, I was, I was genuinely shocked that that was what, and it could, you know, it could have just been the therapist, I don't know. But how is it that someone thinks it's okay for them to tell you exactly what to do in order for you to heal yourself when they have no idea what you're even going through because they haven't even asked you yet? And you know, there's, I, how many women, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, when you ask them, what do you want? They don't know. Mm -hmm. Do you know why they don't know? Here's the example. It's happened to all of us. We're four. We see a plate of cookies. We're a smart four-year-old. There's more cookie in the big one than the little one. And we go for it. Our mother goes, you're bad and you're selfish. You shouldn't go for that good cookie. So you're not going to have a cookie at all. And she gives it to your little brother and he eats it at you. And then she compounds the difficulty. Besides, little girls who eat cookies get fat. Nobody likes a fat girl. Do you really want the cookie? To the point where, in a couple of years, we in, in subconsciously believe anything we want, we're wrong. We're bad. We'll be punished for it, and we have to watch somebody else have it instead. Ooh. This is where all the, no, um, you have the last piece of cake. I don't really need it. No, I don't have time for myself. I have to do what everybody else wants. Mm. That poisons women. Mm. You either do it because you really want to, but you don't do it out of guilt, or because you believe that you don't have a right to want anything. Mm. Making yeah. sense? Yeah, so true. And and I see that so much as well. Asking women, you know, well, what what do you love? Most some don't even know what they love. Because mm -hmm. they've never let themselves actually love something also. You know, it's not just... I mean, that encompasses so many things, right? But it is. It's, it's scary to think. And I was definitely not bought up in that realm, but it was definitely, you know... The chubby kid <laughs> that, that everyone thinks is the chubby kid, even if even if no one does, you still think it because that's what you've been told, right? Exactly, exactly. And you know, it's the same when I think when I was uh, I can't remember how old I was, but I I'd been dancing for forever, ever since I was you know three or four years old. I'd been dancing and I danced a bunch of times a week, and I was getting onto points in ballet, and my teacher turns around and says. There's no point in you do, you continuing to do this because you're never going to make it. You don't have the right body shape. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? I'm not trying to make it. That's not my goal here. I'm doing this because I enjoy it. But I was so young. I must have been, about, I don't know, about 16, maybe even 15. And I just broke down. And I never went back. And I never danced again. Because someone had the right to say what they thought was the right thing to say when it's destroying. I was like, and I think about it now and I'm just like, wow, how could you do that to some, like a small girl who's just dancing away because she enjoys it and doesn't want to become a professional dancer, but then you tell her that she can't do it. It just, yeah, blows me away sometimes. You just think... People think they have uh, the right to judge how a woman looks. Mm. Like that, I took a belly dance class. And the first public performance, this is back with the old figure, and the first public performance I did, I went out, I struck a pose, and some lout in the audience yelled, geez, I didn't know she had a pair of those. I never danced again. Crazy, eh? It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So we truly have to remember what other people think of us is none of our business. Mm -hmm. If we let other people tell us what to do and what we're worth, we will never mm -hmm. learn it ourselves yeah. and we'll never believe it when we do. Mm. Yeah, and even if we do want to do something, we won't ever go and do it because we won't mm -hmm. think that we're worthy or good enough or whatever it is that comes up. Mm. Because we'll be so afraid of what people will think. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you get to the end of your life and you look and you say, look at everything I miss. Yeah. Why didn't I just... My life hasn't been easy. I haven't missed a thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, thanks for that. I, I 
resonate with that a lot so I'm I'm really glad I'm actually I can't believe I haven't read your book yet now I'm like I really need to read this book um it's and it's so refreshing as well because I think as I said before you know we do read a lot of these books and they do tell us or give us all these ideas of what we can do and and a lot of people don't actually do anything with them and saying that a lot of it's the same with everything not even just books you know reading or listening or or even some even your coach telling you <laughs> do you think you should go do this maybe start your mornings with this and they will they won't do it and you're like what why are you doing it's gonna help it's, you it's why i hate new year's resolutions it just gives you more things to fail at <laughs> it's true it's a good point it's a good point um so i mean i'd love to know when when I just want to go back again to the that your your third bout where you're with your your husband that you're with now, um, and you're understanding that you know these um, essentially these breasts of yours are not are, are, are still they're still yours you're still you but they're not part of you they're just they would they're just them right um, but a, a lot of people that would really throw them off and I see it now especially you know I've got a, a friend currently who's had to have a, a a one mastectomy and she's got large breasts and it's really hard for her especially when it's summertime and she wants to go out in into in her swimsuit or whatever and you can't just stuff whatever it is that they've given her to stuff in her clothes because it's not the same you know it's got to get wet and you can see it. You can see how stressful and painful and sort of identity destroying that is for some women. Um, I'd love to know, is is there like a process apart from that gratitude and seeing the opportunity of where you can go and what this, what this means or what you can learn from it? Is there a process that you take, let's say that you have a, a female client like this, that you would take them through for them to see the you know the positive or something that they can learn from that or how they can just see it differently well i would try to help them see their body without it now i was lucky in that when it is a double mastectomy whatever you do it will be symmetrical Mm -hmm. so i went with silicone implants um if a woman feels that she doesn't want an implant, get her to think about how that's going to feel. Um, there are some women that have this gorgeous tattoo where they used to have a breast. Um, if they can get to complete acceptance, realizing it's not punishment, it's not because you're bad, that the body is just the coat you're wearing right now and fine you lost a pocket you know you don't have a pocket on that side you still have a button you still have a collar um and that it is an opportunity for her to find out what she is worth on the inside some can do it some can't mm-hmm. and when you are a counselor you have to be okay with whatever they end up with cool. it has to be complete non-judgment you offer what you have, but they have to accept it in the way that they feel good. Because all of us, we do what we do because we want, in the end, to feel happy about ourselves. And if someone feels that having symmetrical implants feels good, great. If someone would rather have a tattoo, man, I hate nails, no. Then great. <laughs> we never tell them that they're wrong for wanting. But you make sure that they're okay with wanting something if mm-hmm. you can and there are some women that will think no I'm irreparably broken and I'm so ugly and no one will ever want me and if you try to help them find another viewpoint and they won't blessings on their journey you bless it and you release it mm-hmm. you cannot say I failed because you don't know if learning to live with that and heal themselves later on their own is part of their spiritual journey. Mm. Yep, for sure. Cool. Um, thanks for that. So 
uh, just to go back because I want to lighten the mood. <laughs> um, I'd love to know when, because obviously you mentioned that you didn't have, you know, spirit. Well, you you obviously had spirituality from a young age, but you weren't you weren't seeing things or hearing things or getting messages. What was the first time that that ever happened when you? And because that's pretty scary, right? Like unless you unless you're going through a journey of trying to learn that yourself and going, okay, I'm open to this, like bring it. Whereas I think a lot of people who are in your realm don't do that. It just happens one day, and they're just like, oh, did I just did, did something? Someone just say something? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'd love to know when when that first happened and and what what was your reaction? Well, I think it would probably have to do with. Um remembering past lives mm-hmm. when people say did I have a past life I look at them and say you think you're smart enough to get it done in one nobody <laughs> is um and it's also very convenient if someone who is a real bible thumper says but the bible says we only live once I say you know you're right because that's right the soul is what comes down time and again flirt Corby we get one and done um there was a rock group in the 1980s in Philadelphia that I was all over. And I'm not a groupie type, but there was one guy. And there was an almost instant recognition. And I had some chances to interact with. Um, but I did some work, some past life work to see if I could figure it out. And we had everybody around him. We knew that it was somewhere in um, 18th century, uh, 17th century Scotland, no, 18th. And he was the Lord and I was the local ground heels and you don't need to know the story, but we knew something like that. But I couldn't get a name. Well, my mentor and I were having linguine and clam sauce in a mainline restaurant outside of Philly. And all of a sudden in my head was Marcus Barron, Gordon Huntley. And I'm thinking, what? I'm an American, what's this? Two girls and New Bridge. And in there, in 1752, was born Alexander, 12th Marcus of Huntley. And in 1784, he was made Baron Gordon of Huntley. <laughs> Once I realized what the connection was and why it was inappropriate for me to be attracted to this man then, it's it was like a rubber band snapped. And I still liked the music, but I wasn't obsessive about him. Weird. Yeah. But that's what told me past lives are really fascinating and let's go look at them. Um, The tarot I had been doing for years and years and years. But again, the past life stuff was with no training. The talking to dead people was with no training. Um, because through another past life thing, I picked up who I was as a World War I soldier. I would get them in my living room when I lived in Atlanta. And I, I remember this one little German trench soldier. This much of his face was blown away. Just, it, it wasn't there. Whoa. And they always want to know who won. They have to tell them it doesn't matter. <laughs> and I get them to forgive the person who killed them and forgive themselves for who they killed, and then we can get them across. So, so that's why they're that's why they're still hanging around, and, and they're lost in the gray spaces. Right, and it's not that the soul is lost, but that fragment of them hasn't made it across. And so, hang on, did this this guy just like turns up into your living room when you're having coffee or something? Really. And what because I, at that point, I had just deeply found out who I was in World War One. Right. Did um, that, that was not scary then? That part of my soul. It was like somebody said, ah, there's a party line here. The phone's on, on, on the hook. We can call. <clears throat> um, the way I explain how we do, because the one thing I want everyone to know, I'm not special. You can do Mm. what I do. We're all wired like the same houseplant. But one of the reasons that intuitives have different uh, skills, I do tarot and past lives, somebody else does pendulum, somebody else does spirit art. Mm. 
mm-hmm. is because spirit, your guides, whatever, they go rifling through your file cabinet to see what you really have. What are my skills? I was a theater major at Brown University and a, uh, an actor in New York, so I know characters. I am a writer. Words are my drug of choice, so I can tell the story. And I am a history buff. It had been since I was gay big. So, for me to be able to do past life stuff is normal. Instead of just saying, as some might, well, it's a long skirt and a big hat, so I know it's old-fashioned, I would see the same thing in my head and go, that's a hobble skirt, that's a picture hat, that kind of ostrich feather, and I see you standing in front of the Brandenburg Gate. This has to be Berlin in 1911 or 12. Which one's going to give you the most information? But don't ask me to do spirit art, because I cannot draw a stick figure with a sharp pencil and a lot of it's so true. I have done stand-up comedy on you think a second. <laughs> but in all honesty, was that not still scary? Even though you had just figured out that you were a World War One soldier, surely seeing a guy whose head's half blown off in your living room is still quite scary. Well, he didn't show up like on a B-movie. Um, <laughs> it was a heat shimmer, and I saw inside what he looked sure. like. And at that point, this particular guys I were I was working with were the people that I had flown with in World War One. Wow. So I was used to dead people showing up in, in my living room at that point. So cool. Fascinating. So well, weird. fascinating. I admit it's weird. For sure, weird. Well, I guess it depends. When I think when it becomes so normal for you as well, it becomes not weird, right? It's only for those who are totally unaware of that possibility even happening, that it's totally weird, and then they they don't even believe you anyway, so it doesn't really matter. I know, and they expect me to have, like, a sparkly turban and a name like <laughs> Madame Hoo-Ha or Swami Solanda. And no, they, they see me in the local price chopper and look like everybody else. It confuses them. Sorry. <laughs> or making your little potions in your garden shed. <laughs> I'm a good cook, but I do it with the whole Oh, cool. Um, okay, so my couple of last questions that I love to ask you, and I, lo- I ask everyone: um, What's one of the scariest things that you've ever done, or that's ever happened to you? Told my parents, not my parents. Told my brother what I do. Ooh, how did that go? Well, he doesn't believe in what I do. Mm-hmm. Not even sure he believes in God. Mm-hmm. And so I had hidden it for a long time, but I finally told him. And he looked at me and he said, well, shrimp, I'm his little sister. I guess it's not illegal. And to this day, he will not discuss it. He tells people I'm a motivational speaker. Wow, really? Do you know why? I think maybe because I can talk to our father and he can't. Oh, yeah. Or he sees the world as it is, mm-hmm. not the backstory the way I see it maybe the wise, but he is a brilliant and compassionate physician like her father was. So we all do what we do. Has he ever asked uh, your dad to communicate to him through you? No. No. And has your dad ever tried to communicate something to him? Probably. But not through you? No. Oh, no. No. There is no way that I would ever do anything of what I can do in my brother's presence. Right. Never. Because... Because that is what he... That is how to be kind to him. Right, okay, sure. You know, um, one of the things that drives me crazy is drive-by psychic shootings. When someone starts saying, I have a message for you and just publish you at it and you don't know them from Adam's house cat. Oh, yeah. Part of Part of being a professional intuitive is you know when to shut up. Not your circus, not your monkeys. So, why did you tell him? Because he and I look so much alike. We're cookie cutters. And I wanted to do some intuitive spiritual expos, etc. near where he lives. And I didn't want anybody mm-hmm. coming up to him and saying, hey, I saw your sister at this. Did you know she did this? Right. Because I had been staying away from where he lives and any states around it 
and I was, I won't say losing business, but I wanted to expand what I did, and he was the only reason I wasn't. So. And did you expand? Did you go in there? I, absolutely. Did anyone recognize you? Um, if they did, they didn't say so, because I don't read under my legal name. I read under what I call my Elton John name. Nice. He's red, white, and he's Elton John, my legal name versus Courtney Middle Name. <laughs> uh, simply because that way I don't get calls at three in the morning. <laughs> that makes sense. It's, oh, when I was reading it in my real name originally, you'd get I'd get drunk calls. Hey, my lo- my wife left me. She coming back, or can I spare the woman down the street? She's all I mean, No, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm not dealing with it. That- so now it's my cell phone which gets turned off. Oh my goodness. And- my entertainer's name and dad's on the way again. <laughs> Did actually someone call you and say that? Oh my hey, goodness. Well, they use lots of words I will not use on the air. Sure. <laughs> but yes, they did. That's hilarious. Wow, that's funny. Oh, how how did they even get your phone number? Is it just they can just search for it? Because I had a flyer out at one of the local bookstores. Huh. That knew it. <laughs> This was, you know, back in the 1990s before we had the internet. And this yeah. Day. It's much safer now. Yeah. Um, and I love not having to be on the road anymore. I mean, my nickname used to be the Travel Channel because I was on the road 45 weekends a year. But when the big bug hit, everything had to go online. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's great with me. Yeah. I'd much rather read with my own coffee and my cat over there yeah. than constantly in some different hotel and work at 11 hours a day. Absolutely. Yeah. Comfort of your own home as well. Um, Okay, so tell us um, what's the best piece of advice that you could give to our listeners today? I am going to give you my two magic phrases for when someone argues with you about what's good for you, what you want, what you do, etc. Okay? And then you look at them and smile and say, thank you for sharing. You may think that if you wish. And then you go do what the hell you want because it's your life. Nice. What about if someone's asking for advice because they feel like they don't know what to do? I try to help them find their own answers. And I... And the first thing I'll say is, what's the most important thing you want to walk out of your knowing? And if they still don't know that, I'll just go right New York City, Brooklyn, or I'm going to go, what's biting your butt? Because everybody <laughs> will answer that. What does that mean? In <laughs> How would I what's understand? biting your butt? What is it that's, that's nibbling at you that you cannot figure out? Oh, okay. Okay. I've never heard that. Um, yeah. <laughs> But the other is, is you know, very, very New York, which I can do, but only if I have to. Awesome. I love it. So um, just because we're at the end of the podcast, but I'd love for you to uh, give a little bit of a, a spiel on your on your book um, so that if anyone's listening and they want to go grab it or they want to know what they'll get out of it, um, yeah, tell them a little bit more about your okay. book. There are actually three books. The first one we were talking about today is called Clean Out Your Life Closet. It covers clarity, adaptability, simplicity, and making friends with stress. But it shows you how that you have your own answers and you can write your own story of change. If you want to know more about what I really do with my life, there is a book called The Psychic Yellow Brick Road, How to Find the Real Wizards and Avoid the Flying Monkeys. That will keep you safe when you go to anybody, not just me, for a psychic or intuitive reading. And if you're really crazy enough to want to do what I do professionally, that's You've Got the Magic Who Needs a Genie. Everything that I learned on the road for 18 years being an A-lister. You can find them all on Amazon. Nice. And we'll put the links to those in the show notes as well for anyone who wants them. Um, They can go and find them there. Um, And your website as well. So if they want to learn more about you. And I'm guessing that they can get a reading uh, from a link on your website as well if they'd like one. Huge. I have something like 20 different readings. So yes, go play (laughs) on the website. Awesome. And they're all done uh, via Zoom as well? 
Zoom, Skype, or phone, and you will always get an MP3 recording uh, of our session because you'll never remember everything, and if you're taking notes, you're not listening. Nice. I like it. Cool. Amazing. Thanks, Corby. Thanks so much for uh, coming and joining us today. It's been fascinating, fun, and deep. I've loved every moment of it, so thanks for, for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for asking. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and head on over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listener and give us a five-star review. Don't forget to join our free Facebook community called She's Unshakable, where we get to share our tips and tricks and experiences with building courage, resilience, and belief in ourselves. I look forward to meeting you in there.